It's a joy again to welcome you and to just uh, greet you in Jesus' name. It's good to be together again as a church and also to greet those of you at home who are um, tuning in via the live stream. I wanted to take you back. We're approaching the very end of the Gospel of Mark, a series which we've been um, dealing with in, in sections, I suppose, over some months. And I want to take you back. We're approaching the very end as we are encountering the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And this is the very passage that we'll be reading today. We're going to pick it up from Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. And I want to read to you down to verse 39. So please, if you have a Bible, open it up, read along, and let's contemplate what is going on here as the Lord Jesus Christ is, is there upon the cross. He had not long since been condemned by Pilate and sentenced to crucifixion, and as he is nailed to the cross, he is initially mocked by those on either side of him and those around him. And then it says this, Mark 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. We spent many months examining and considering the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, leading us to this very moment, a moment that he had predicted and anticipated and referred to time and time again, a moment that he was conscious of living for. The sense of his mission in the world was to get to this point in his life when he would actually lose his life. And therefore, in reading this section of the Gospel of Mark, I feel that sense that we are walking on holy ground. And you consider what is it that the Christians esteem above all things. There's something unique about the Christian faith in that we don't esteem particular places. I mean, some Christians do, but there's no need to. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's. There are no particular holy places on earth. Everything is God's. And we don't necessarily need to esteem particular moments whether it's festivals or days of the week or any such thing, because every day is holy, the book of Romans says. But what we do esteem, and this is what is so unique about our faith, is we esteem a person, and we esteem a particular moment in history. And this is that moment. And this has confused many, many people over the centuries. In fact, it's been part of one of the reasons why Christianity has been rejected and marked and scandalized. The very earliest recipients of the news that a Messiah had come and died immediately began to reject it. The Jews considered this to be an absolute scandal and a contradiction in terms that God could suffer. The Greeks thought it was just a stupid idea, foolishness, as it was said in the New New Testament. One of the early groups of heretics were called Gnostics. 
And they could not accept this narrative of events. They couldn't accept it, and they, they reweaved the story of the life of Jesus, and they began to write false gospels, like the Gospel of Peter, where he doesn't cry out in his last breath on the cross about the abandonment that he experienced, but rather he cries out, My power, O power, and ascends immediately to heaven. Islam arising six, seven centuries later, as it began to burgeon through the whole Middle East, rejected this notion that Jesus could have died. They accepted him as someone great, a great prophet, but they said there's no way that he died. So you see, time and time again, this is the very thing that was kept being rejected, the idea that this son of God could die. And even today, although that is, that is accepted, Jesus died, it's also viewed as the reason why Christianity is a nonsense. The secularists will say, this is why you're following a failed savior. But what we see when we read the Bible, friends, is that this is the moment for which, to which everything has been leading. You're only a few pages into the first book of the Bible when you begin to hear the whispers and suggestions of the necessity of the suffering of a savior. And the living God speaks to the, the, the serpent in the Garden of Eden and says that the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, that the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. And then not many pages later, as we begin to move into the narrative of the scripture, and you see God's saving plan begin to work its way into reality, and God calls a man, he calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and through you the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he gives him a son, Isaac, and he says, go and sacrifice your son on the mountain. And he takes him up the mountain, and there, as he's about to, to stab his son and make him a sacrifice to God, God provides a ram stuck in a thicket, a substitute, one that would die in the place of his son, Isaac. The serpent crusher, the ram. Then we move many hundreds of years on into the story of... Israel's enslavement under the Egyptians and how God delivers his people. But do you remember how it culminates at the end of the 10 plagues when they're delivered from Egypt in the book of Exodus? And the final plague is the death of the firstborn sons and every firstborn creature in the land of Egypt, except for the the Israelites because they have an atoning sacrifice in their homes when the Passover lamb is killed and the blood is put on the doors of, of, of their homes so that the angel of death passes over their homes. And then you see how God speaks the law into the life of that nation. How they're given this system of sacrifices by which they can atone for their sins. The most important of which being Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Where they're told to make certain sacrifices so that their sins would be atoned for. And God was beginning to speak. There is a sacrifice that will be given in place of your sin. And all of these suggestions build and build and build and grow, and I'm missing out many dozens of them throughout the Old Testament, but it seems to culminate, in my mind at least, in the book of Isaiah, when you see all of this suggestion and prediction focusing on the reality of a person who would come in our place, what is described as a suffering servant. And so even though this has been the very thing which could not, has not been accepted by every heresy and cult and false religion on the face of the earth, This is the very thing which the Bible says is the most important moment in history. The moment for which Christ came. The moment for which he was giving himself. In the book of Peter. 1 Peter, sorry. He talks about this anticipation. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. He's saying that there were these men of God who listened to the voice of God 
And they had only glimpses and shadows of what God was going to do. But they looked and they sought out. They tried to figure out what is it that God is promising to do. This is it, friends. He describes it also as something into which angels long to look. And so we get this impression as we're reading this passage in the book of Mark. That as these moments took place in the, reality, in, in, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That everything in history had been leading to this moment. And that all of heaven is watching and gazing in. You know the story of how when the moon landings took place in the 1960s. Something like 650 million people watched it live on television. In a day and an age of course when the population of the world was much smaller and TVs were less common. It was a phenomenal number of people. And saying all eyes on this as Neil Armstrong stepped out of the moon landing, lander onto the, plant, onto the surface of the moon. And this is a sense of expectation except many times more important that the scriptures is leading us to when we read this passage in the, in the, book of the, in the Gospels. That all of heaven is gazing down, every angel's peering to see the unfolding of God's plan as he'd intended it from the foundation of the world as the Lamb of God is crucified in our place upon the cross. This is it, friends. And my question to you is, how do we esteem this moment? We understand, don't we, that at precious and significant moments in life, We are to conduct ourselves in a way that's appropriate to that, whether it's a celebration. We go to a wedding in our best garments, or whether it's at a funeral, or whether it's commemorating the the war dead and we wear poppies. We know that there are ways that we ought to esteem holy moments, special moments, precious moments. How do we esteem the Lord Jesus Christ as we read a, a story like this? We read this account. And I think above all, what the Lord Jesus wants of us is simply to look and to contemplate and to meditate. As you look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said that when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. He's saying that when eyes are fixed upon him, the crucified Savior, there is a transforming power that takes place through the reality of his death and what he's done for us, such that you, your heart is reformed and transformed and your mind and your will and your whole life experience transformation. And so, friends, I want us to approach in that mindset. Some of you are not Christian. I'm conscious that you're on a spiritual journey. I cannot overestimate to you how important this is to understanding what the Christian faith has to offer you But for those of you who have been walking with and love the Lord Jesus Christ, to come back to this moment, to come back to the cross, is a transformative thing. God can rewire your heart. There are the sins of our hearts and the prevailing issues in our hearts which need to be dealt with. There are the doubts and anxieties and the fears and the apathy, all of which can be fixed when we gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So we need to look. I want us to walk through it then. And as we do, we're going to take it just a section at a time. What do we see when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross? The first thing we see is darkness. It says in verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour was midday, the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. For three hours, there was this heavy darkness that settled upon the land, 
most likely just the land of Israel. It is a supernatural event. When Passover was taking place, it was always at full moon, so there's no way this could have been an eclipse. It is a supernatural event, and therefore it speaks of what God, what is happening in the heavenlies as the Son of God is crucified upon the cross. What is it that is taking place here? I think the answer is a couple of things you can say. One thing you can say is that there's an experience of mourning going on in heaven. In the book of Amos, it speaks of a darkness descending and the grief in heaven as God's judgment falls. And certainly that's one way in which we can understand this. Are we to feel sad when we look at Jesus on the cross? I think it's a yes and a no. There's a yes in knowing that it's my sin that put him there. But we never pity him, do we? The darkness speaks of mourning, but more than that, I think it speaks of the judgment of the living God as he pours out his wrath upon the Lord Jesus Christ upon this cross. It echoes what took place and what I've already mentioned, that Exodus night, when the, that, that time of the Exodus when Israel was freed from slavery to the Egyptians. The ninth plague, the penultimate plague, was darkness that descended upon the land of Egypt for three days. And then, of course, the final plague, the killing of the firstborns, took place in the night as darkness descended upon the land. And there's no question in my mind that when that darkness speaks of the removal of God's favor and love and the outpouring of his anger and judgment. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross. All of that is being poured upon him. William Hendrickson a great commentator on scripture, he wrote this. He said, the darkness meant judgment. The judgment of God upon our sins, his wrath, as it were, burning itself out in the very heart of Jesus. So that he, as our substitute, suffered most intense agony, indescribable woe, terrible isolation or forsakenness. There is darkness. The second thing you see is dereliction. It says that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sebektani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus said these words, he was quoting, of course, from the 22nd Psalm, which opens with this line, a Psalm of David, a prophetic Psalm, which later goes on to speak with with transparent lucidity about the death of Jesus. And it says this, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and feet. Remember, he's hanging on the cross with his hands and feet pierced. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know how all these things came to be fulfilled on that very day. His back was lacerated and torn open so that you could count his ribs. They were gloating around him. They were dividing his garments. His clothes were gambled for by the soldiers as they cast lots for his clothes. So as Jesus is saying these words upon the cross, it's not, he's not asking the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me out of any sense of confusion about what's going on in that moment? 
but rather to open up to us the reality of what he's experiencing there upon the cross. And what is that reality? It's the reality of his experience of rejection and abandonment for you and I. I think that to be rejected and to be abandoned is the most painful thing that can happen in the life of a human being. We are created to give and receive love. We need love to survive. Some of you may have experienced this in your lives even to this point. I know that it is said that to go through a divorce, for example, is one of the most traumatic things that can happen in the life of a person. As much as we have belittled the experience in our culture by turning it into a legal process, the reality is that you cannot so easily disentangle yourself from another. You cannot get through that experience unscathed. The experience of rejection tears your life open. We know the same is true for children. We know that abuse isn't just what happens actively when children are harmed and damaged. We also know that they experience immense harm just through neglect. The most extreme example of this, of course, is the examples of children around the world kept in orphanages where they don't experience any human tenderness or love or care. Those children will not grow fully. Their bodies will experience stunted growth. Their minds and intellect will be, will be, will be uh, debilitated by this, the lack of love, by the fact that they are not cherished and honored and loved as children. And this is the sickness that is... There, at the heart of creation, the Bible says, that when sin came into the world, God, as it were, removed his presence. And all the, sun, all the suffering and torment and agonies that we experience in life, every suffering that you experience in life, is an outworking of the removal of God's favor upon us, of his presence with us, of his love towards us, in ways that have reverberated and, and run through the entire universe. So when the Lord Jesus Christ is crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing all of the pain and torment of creation in his own person as he, to the full, experiences the abandonment of the Father according to the will of God. This dereliction, this cry of dereliction. There's darkness and there's dereliction. The third thing you see taking place here on the cross I want to describe as a kind of discordance. Now this is a strange moment here because as the Lord Jesus Christ is in his most, in his moments of most agonized exposure and vulnerability, you see what's going on around him at the foot of the cross. It says that those who hear him crying out, they say, behold, he's calling Elijah. And they ran and filled a sponge and, with sour wine. And they said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, all of these events that are taking place around him as the observers are watching Jesus die, all of these things seem totally inappropriate in the moment. Whether it's stupidity or something more ugly, a kind of mockery that's taking place. At a minimum, this is just a crass ignorance of what is happening here, that the most important event in the history of all created things is happening right in front of their eyes as the Son of God is crucified and his life is giving way. The bystanders are caught in kind of jokey mockery. And there's a discordance to that. 
It's like if you were to go to one of the great concerts that takes place in the concert halls in London and to hear a great Philharmonic orchestra with all the many pieces of that orchestra playing in perfect harmony and tune and then a drunk on the front row stands up and starts trying to sing along. The ridiculous reality of a moment like that is what's happening here. It is discordant because it's out of harmony with the reality of what God is working out here. And why is this so important to the story? Because, as I've been saying to you, everything in history has been leading to this moment. It is God's creative symphony. All the pages of scripture have had different moments come through in this symphony. There have been tragic moments and then moments of rising expectation and hope. But all of it has been leading to this particular moment in time. But as you see the bystanders missing it, they're a symbol of how the world misses what Jesus did for us upon the cross. How we can be totally discordant with this reality. Even in this particular moment right now. When we miss the impact of it. When it, doesn't, when it fails to touch our hearts and our minds and our lives and transform us, we're discordant. We're like these markers standing around the cross. Or, or worse still, when as believers, when as those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we find ourselves walking down a path in which we living, are living lives which are out of tune with the reality of what he did for us that day. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. He said that some have fallen away. He says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I think the book of Hebrews is describing there the way in which even somebody who professes to be a believer can live a life which is out of harmony, discordant with the realities of the cross and what Christ did for us on that day. You can see, can't you, that there is a way to be in tune with what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, to honor him rightly, to worship him, to surrender to him, to love him, to seek to live a life of purity and holiness in the light of what he's done for you, that he's purchased you. Then, of course, to be discordant with that is to do all the opposite things, to turn away from him, to reject him, to live a life of indulgence of our sins. And so we see around the cross this discordance. Then we see the death of Jesus in a moment which I want to describe as a kind of decreation. Let me read to you again that line. Mark 15, verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. At first glance, you can just see it as a, a description of his death, tragic as that is. But look again, and what you can begin to see, I think, is this. Something like the beginning of the collapse of the old creation. And what I mean is this. When you recount the creation story in the book of Genesis, do you remember how it unfolds? That initially there is darkness and chaos And God speaks light into the darkness and so begins to bring order into chaos. The beginning of the creation story. And it culminates in and climaxes with God forming the man and then breathing spirit into him. And so the creation is born. But as we read this account of the death of the Lord Jesus, we're seeing here the reversal of those things. 
that where there was light in God's creation, we now see darkness descending. And where God breathed spirit into the first Adam, the first man, now the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, expires, breathes out breath and dies. What does this mean? I think this means everything. It speaks to us of the fact that by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, God was condemning his old creation that was broken and ruined. If you ever see an old damaged building it may have a sign nailed to it outside saying condemned the whole thing has not been destroyed yet but it is condemned to be destroyed and when Jesus breathed out the second Adam breathed out his life as darkness had descended upon the land I think that what God is saying to us here is that everything that we see around us is beginning to come apart the creation is doomed is condemned to be destroyed and pulled apart brick from brick. But not to lead us into a hopelessness, of course, because we know to anticipate what is to take place, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ will be the firstborn from among the dead. He will, as it were, be the first example, the forerunner of God's new creation that is yet to come. He'll be like the foundation stone after you've demolished the building and dug out the ground to form the foundations and how the cornerstone goes in first to set the whole thing straight. That is what the New Testament says the Lord Jesus Christ is. And not just in a sort of mystical, theoretical sense, but in a very physical sense because by his resurrected body, he is the first part of the new world that God is yet to create. But here we see in his death the beginnings of the decreation of the old. You can see how this speaks to us of hope, doesn't it? means that everything that we see broken in the world around us is going to come to an end. Many people have wrestled the question, why the pandemic? Well, can't you see this creation is writhing in the agonies of the outworkings of our sin, ready to come to an end. Whatever else you say about this pandemic, I think you can say that. But praise Jesus when he breathed his last on the cross, We know that this world with all of its suffering will come to an end at his time so that something new can be born. Then there is what I want to describe as a demolition. In verse 38, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Christ had said of his death upon the cross that it would be the beginning of life. He said in John chapter 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he was speaking there about his own life that would be given. He'd be like a seed that goes into the ground, buries and dies, so that new life could come out. And here, the very moment that we've seen the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, as his breath has expired from his body, immediately we begin to see the fulfillment of what he was predicting there, that new life begins to come. How do we see it? Well, what's it about? The curtain of the temple, of course, was the veil which separated that place called the most holy place from the next, the next level of the temple, the outer section called the holy place. And the veil or the curtain of the temple was really there for our protection, for the protection of humanity. 
as God's presence rested, his kavod, the Hebrew word is, his shekinah, or the shekinah, the glory, the heaviness of God's presence rested there in the most central part of the temple. And the curtain would separate and protect the priests who in going about their daily business could not approach the glory of God lest they die because of their contamination with sin. And as the Lord Jesus Christ dies upon the cross, that curtain is rent into two pieces. It is torn from top to bottom. The New Testament goes on to explain this. In the book of Hebrews, for example, the author to the Hebrews speaks about this reality as reason why we can now have great confidence to approach God. He says, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And he goes on to say, let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with a heart sprinkled clean. It is an extraordinary thing as you contemplate the cross to see that in that moment, you remember how the book of John records Jesus' final word on the cross as tetelestai, it is finished. And he's saying that it is finished. The separation between God and humanity is finished. It's come to an end. The possibility of knowing God is now yours. You can come into his presence confidently through the new veil that is torn apart, which is his own body, as you enter into the holy places. And then this account of the death of Jesus ends with a final thing, which is a declaration. It says in verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. You could easily overlook the significance of this. But as I just said to you, the Lord Jesus Christ had said that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I think of this moment as the beginning of that. The curtain has just been torn and God has just made a way. Now imagine if you were to take all of your life savings, should you have life savings? I know it may not even be the case. But let's say you take everything you own, you sell it all, you, 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 you decide to purchase a farm. You buy a field. And with whatever's left, you buy some seed Farming is always an act of faith, isn't it? Because you have to trust that you're going to have the weather and so on, that you're going to reap a harvest that will give you a profit at some time in the future, a year away. But you do all this. And you're living on the breadline, as it were. Can you imagine the joy when the first shoots begin to peak up from the soil? And you know there's life in the ground. And in a sense, this is what is going on here. The Lord Jesus Christ has only just breathed his last breath upon the cross and immediately the fruit of his death is beginning to be seen. Why does this man profess a kind of belief in Jesus as the son of God? He's a hardened, brutalized Roman soldier, a centurion who led a hundred men 
had no doubt seen war and had crucified potentially hundreds or thousands of other people before he crucified Jesus. You think it's not possible to go through a life like that and remain normal in the sense he would have been experiencing PTSD and all kinds of things. And yet here, in this moment, something, something changes a soldier. And we don't know what it was particularly. Whether it was Christ's purity, just emanating from who he is, his power. The work of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, breathing upon this man's heart. But as he gazes upon Jesus and sees the way in which he dies, in that instant, faith is born. Brothers and sisters, you ask the question, why does this matter so much? It matters, friends, because of what Jesus has said about his death. He said it would be like the grain of wheat that goes into the ground and dies, but then bears much fruit. But he also went on in that same chapter in John 12 to say this. He said, when, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John explains that Jesus was talking about his death upon the cross. When literally and physically he was lifted up, up from the ground and placed in this position, arms stretched out, body hanging limp from the cross. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. This is the great paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. That as we gaze upon Jesus in the moment of apparent failure, as he's dying upon the cross, it is then that your heart is changed. That you feel grief on account of the sin that put him there. That you feel hope because he took it off you upon himself. And you will begin to be drawn to him. And I think something of that, if not the full experience of it, at least something of that is taking place in the declaration of the centurion as he sees the Lord Jesus Christ die upon the cross. What about you? It may be the case that you've been wrestling with this question of whether you want to follow Jesus with your life whether you want to give your life to him. Friend, Jesus said, as I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. The very fact that you've been on this spiritual journey has been his work in your life to draw you to this point. And I can think of no better moment than as we contemplate his death upon the cross for you to say to him, Lord Jesus, have my life. Forgive me of my sin and have my life. Brothers and sisters, those of us who are already believers in Jesus. How is he moving in your heart now? What sins is he wanting you to repent from? How is he wanting to extend his lordship into every dimension of your being and existence? What does it mean for you today to surrender to him afresh, to take up your cross again today and say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. What does it mean for you to recognize the fact that you were you bought at the price of his own blood? What does it mean for Jesus to lay hold of you by this death? I can't answer that for you. That is the responsibility of every Christian every day of their life to ask that question again and again. Lord Jesus, how 
do you want to take possession of me today? How can I be yours fully? So I want to encourage you, let's bow our heads together now and let's contemplate that very thing. I'm going to invite Jono to come and lead us in a response of worship. But why don't we just spend a couple of moments in the quiet first? The Holy Spirit honors the proclamation of Christ's death. Whenever we look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the Spirit of God who moves upon our hearts to bring about a right response to Him. And so, friends, I want to encourage you to open your heart up to the work of the Spirit now. What is He doing in you? What is He saying to you? Let's have a moment of quiet as we reflect on this. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Oh, Father, we confess. That as frail creatures... Our lives and our time and our attention and our desire gets caught up with so many other things. But we want you to burn upon our hearts the image of your Son. For his claim to reach every corner of our existence. draw us back to you we pray in love and in service in devotion and sacrifice in worship in awe in adoration in prayer in giving in loving in extending mercy being full of forgiveness in peace and in confidence We want, Lord, to live cross-shaped lives. 
We want to feel the weight of what you've done for us, Lord. And to feel the liberty that comes through the knowledge of our belonging to you. Of our being saved. Of our being owned and possessed by God because of Christ. We want to experience the freedom that comes through knowing the simplicity that our life should have one purpose and one purpose alone. That apart from all the distracting desires and ambitions that draw us to one side or the other, our lives are called to one singular calling, which is to love your Son. So we come to you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Save us now. Save us in the time to come. In Jesus' name, amen.